Welcome back to another edition of Fund Friday with a very esteemed and special guest, a friend, a partner, Chris Larson with Next Level Income. How are you today, sir? Craig, I'm great. Great to see you. Likewise. It's always a pleasure to speak with you in the morning. Uh, and I'm really excited to go through uh, this show with you because you are very particular in many respects, but I would say specifically, you are particular with regards to your partners. So Chris has a very, very uh, strict gatekeeping process with partners and somehow, just kidding, but we were lucky enough to get through his gatekeeping process. So we'll dive into that and much more. But why don't you real quick, give us a background about who you are, an introduction and just kind of the high level overview of you. Yeah, appreciate that, Craig. Yeah, some people may say um, I'm particular. Some may say I'm peculiar. Um, but <laughs> e either way, either way, I'm I am who I am. Um, and yeah, so I've been investing in in real estate since I was 21 years old. I bought my first property in college. Started in the residential side. Uh, we've been in we have been involved in the commercial side um, for over a decade now. We started in the multifamily space, which we're still big fans of. Um, and we've we moved into some other asset classes as well. We did our first syndication in 2016. Um, but I, I went to college for engineering, but I really went to college to race my bike. I wanted to be a professional cyclist. And I was racing through high school into college and reached, reached a pretty high level. I was a category one cyclist, which for any listeners that that know, once you're category one, you you can go pro. You basically just your that's that's your qualification you just have to take out a pro license and actually it's like your team, tour card almost like if you're in golf like you get q school you, you, your yes. tour card is that's basically similarly the the equivalent for for cycling yes so you start as a cat five and then you move your way up five four three two and the biggest jump is from two to one and you have to you have to get enough points and the challenge is when you're a, a category two cyclist you start to race. You actually do pro-am races starting as a two, so it becomes more and more challenging. Um, but yeah, I had I had um, good, uh, you know, some some good results, and really my best results came in my sophomore year of college. But I quit at the end of that year, um, that end of that season. The reason is the the prior summer, my best friend, he was my training partner. He was actually going to be my roommate. He was a year younger than me. He was going to join me at Virginia Tech. Uh, he passed away. Had a massive brain hemorrhage. I went back to school and I just poured my heart into soul, heart and soul into cycling. It was really, really therapeutic for me in a lot of ways. Um, but I, I struggled scholastically. I was in these really challenging engineering courses and I, I really didn't want to be there. I was probably depressed if I really look back at it. Um, and after racing for another year and being as successful I was as I was, I, I realized something and that was that I really, I didn't have the passion for it. And the reason is that I, I had this realization that riding your bike around in a circle is really not that big of a deal. And there's a lot more to life. So I came back to school. I sold all my bikes. I was actually president of the cycling team at the time at Virginia tech. Um, and I said, all right, there's, I'm going to, I, I want to live life to the fullest. I want to experience all there is to experience. And the fact of the matter is in, in, in today's world, specifically, you know, in, in the world that we live in here in America, you have to have money to have, independence, to have freedom to do things. So I, I set out on this journey to figure out how can I become financially independent? And I was investing in the stock market. I was day trading. I was making like $5,000 a month as a junior in college day trading, but it was very stressful. And anybody that has done it understands that's not really investing. That's speculating. Well, by the way, five, yeah. 5k a day 
one year in college, or five uh, k a week, a month. Sorry, a month. A month. Okay, yeah. five grand a month yeah. in college is a lot of money in today's market, even so. And then yeah. take that back to when you went to college, which was what time period, roughly? Yeah, that was that was over twenty five years ago. So we're talking about basically late nineties, early thousands. Yeah. You're making yep, five grand a exactly month, right. which was a lot of money for sure. And then did you kind of, I guess, if you will, engineer or kind of figure out some sort of computer algorithm to kind of trade? So back then I was using technical analysis. So I was doing like swing trades. Um, and, and look, to be fair, the market was, I mean, it was on a tear back then. So you had, you know, in the, in the stocks I was trading in these tech stocks on the NASDAQ, you'd have massive swings. Like, you know, some days you have 20, 30% swings. So you could really, if you had, if you were disciplined and you had an algorithm that you were following or a system you were following, you could, you could do really well. But there are also days, weeks, months that I, I lost a lot of money. And it's just, it became very stressful. And I was like, this is not like, I'm 20 years old. I'm like not sleeping. You know, I'm drinking like, you know, Red Bulls at 3 a.m. to like try to stay awake. And I was like, this is ridiculous. I'm going to, I'm going to die, let alone, you know, not enjoy my life, you know? So I was like, I got to find a better way. And I ended up going from engineering into an MBA program. And from my junior year, um, over the next few years, I read 250 books on all things, money, business, investing, stocks, real estate, started going to different real estate investing seminars. And it's during that period that I bought my first property. And I just said, Hey, if I can, if I can own enough real estate to cover my monthly expenses, you know, in the next you know, 10, 15 years, then that's a very simple, highly predictable plan that I can follow, which is what I initially set out on. Um, but I needed capital. And I also concomitantly started a career in the medical device industry as well. Um, so I did that uh, for a total of about 18 years um, along this journey um, in real estate. So you were doing the trading, you educated yourself a lot. I'm sure you read Rich Dad, Poor Dad and all the other great oh, yeah. books that are uh, the classics in the real estate world. But then you get into from your engineering background to medical sales. Yes. Kind of an interesting yes, direction. Was that purely based off basically the commissions and the sales structure of what that kind of could provide to you, knowing that ultimately it was a means to an end to get to the point where you could acquire basically enough capital to purchase real estate effectively? Yeah, you're putting the you're putting the dots together here, Craig. So, um, what happened is that you know I bought that first property. I said, okay, I a couple things. I read Rich Dad Poor Dad, and Robert Kiyosaki talked about being accredited and how if you're accredited, you get access to these investments that you don't have, and those are the best investments. And I was like, well, I got to be accredited. So I said, well, how how can I make a lot of money? And I had actually my engineering degree is biomechanical engineering, so. I always enjoyed sales. I started selling wrapping paper when I was 12 years old. I was selling, you know, I was selling newspapers in, in middle school. Um, I go door to door and I'd get um, like lawn care clients. So I would, I would rake leaves or shovel snow in the winter or the fall. And I'd make like, I mean, again, this is going back even further. I'd make like 300 bucks in a weekend, like doing leaves or snow. And that, that's a lot of money when your friends are working for a month or two to make that in minimum wage. So I said, okay, you know, med device, hiring career, um, sales. It was really interesting because when I learned about it, I was like, wait, these are the same types of implants that we were analyzing and designing in my engineering classes. Now, I always joke. I said my advisor pulled me aside in my senior year and said, hey, Chris, you're not smart enough and you have too much personality to be an engineer. So you should do something different. So I, that's why I joke I got into sales. The cool thing, Craig, was that 
I got to work with the technology that the, the biomechanical engineers designed. So I could understand like, you know, the metallurgy and I get to understand, you know, the, the stress testing and, and all of like the true know, inner workings of the product. Exactly. And I had this physiology background, you know, from the biomechanical side. I love biology and physiology from my, my athletic background. So, you know, I got to be in the OR with surgeons. So I literally, I got to work with the engineers and the technology and I got to work with the surgeons, you know, these, these geniuses, neurosurgeons and orthopedic spine surgeons, um, every day. And you get to negotiate with the hospitals, you know, you get to put together these sales plans. It's a very, um, it's a, it's a very complex sales environment, very complex products, um, and a very in, invigorating environment to do it. It's also very stressful. And I was on call for 12 of those years. So I worked probably an average of six days a week, 60 to 80 hours a week during that period. Driving around, I'm sure, all throughout whatever your territory like would have been. And that was, was that in North Carolina at the time? Was that in a different state? Where were you located? So I started my career in, in Northern Virginia and I moved down to Asheville. Um, yeah, I mean, I drove, there were weeks I was driving, you know, thousands of miles. Um, but I also had periods where I was working in one account and it's also, it's, it's, you know, when you're, when you're sitting in one hospital for 16 hours a day and you can't leave because you just have cases nonstop. I mean, I'd, I'd have days I'd do 10 cases with surgeons. And, um, if anybody understands spine, you know, your shortest spine case is usually about two hours long. And I had spine cases that went, you know, 10 or more hours as well. So, you know, it, was, it could be, you know, the days were grueling, but you know, it was, it was, um, it was a lucrative career. And I had this plan where I was dumping all this money I was making into real estate. So as I was making more money, I was just watching my passive income grow over that period of time. Gotcha. So you started in the medical space, you bought your first house, you kind of start trading up, trading up. How much were you basically, did you have like a certain goal that you're putting, you know, equity away for, for opportunities, investments? And, you know, how did you kind of educate yourself on what a good deal looked like and what a good deal didn't look like and kind of the nuances there? And when did your kind of investment career start, like the first acquisition of your house? And then when you started, you know, educating yourself in reference to, you know, multifamily opportunities or basically accredited investor opportunities as, you know, that book suggested? Yeah. So, all right. So we got, we got a few pieces there. So let's, let's step back. So if you're, if you're getting started in your, in your investing journey early in your life, I have a rule, save 50%. So there's, there's certain things that we're just not good at as humans. My wife jokes, she's like, you don't have any self-discipline, Chris. Like if we bring ice cream in the house, you're going to eat it. I'm like, well, I don't bring the ice cream in the house. Like that's my self-discipline. Like I don't even give myself the option to make that choice. So I hate this concept of like a budget, right? Oh, we're only going to spend this much money and then we're going to save whatever's left. That's really hard to do. You know, it's like, okay, that's like, it's like coming back from a long bike ride where I'm really hungry. I'm ravenous I'm famished. And I open the fridge or the freezer and there's ice cream in there. Like I'm, I'm going to be weakest, right? So how do you short circuit that? So I would save first. So if your goal is to save 50%, and you make, let's say you make $300,000 and you pay, we'll just make the math really easy and really unfavorable. You make 300 grand or 250 or whatever it is, and you end up with 200,000 after taxes. So you want to save $100,000. So what do you do? You, you save, what is that? A little over 8,000. Was that 8,333 a month? Something mm -hmm. like that is 10,000 or a uh, hundred thousand a year. Okay. 
So you save that first. And that could be in your 401k, which I'm not a huge fan of. Um, I prefer like cash value life insurance. It could be, you know, qualified retirement plans, life insurance plans. That could even be like your mortgage, um, you know, where, where things, you know, money that you're putting towards, towards principal. So you can count all that stuff. Then whatever's left, you spend it. Now, how fun is that, right? So if you're, if you're a high earning professional and you save that money first, and then you get a big bonus. It's like, well, then go buy the car. You know, buy buy that BMW you want, or for me, buy that ten thousand dollar race bike that you want. You know, that's fun. You have something you're working towards, but you're saving first. So that was the first rule that I put into place. The second was like, what what types of investments? So I started with single family rentals. Again, super simple plan. Buy enough properties. Once they're paid off, I had ten thousand a month coming in after expenses. So I was like, I just got to buy these properties, and I got to pay the mortgages off over ten or fifteen years. And I was had enough money coming, and I could do that. But here I am. I got an MBA in portfolio management hanging on my wall. I do the math after several years, and there was several things that happened in my life that um, made me kind of take a step back. I'm making seven percent on my equity in my properties in my you know like right after my thirtieth, early thirties. And I'm thinking like, that's not a very good number. And then I'm paying tax on it. I'm making 4% on my equity. This is ridiculous. And that's after doing your depreciation, after kind of factoring all expenses, perhaps your cash on cash yep. return is roughly then. And this is how many years yep. ago? About, you know, about a decade about ago or so? 15 years ago. Yeah, okay, a little gotcha. over a decade ago. So this is my early 30s. So I'm thinking like, there's got to be a and better way. And I'm timetable yeah. wise, sorry to cut you off. Is that around the great, no you know, great financial crisis or so around that kind of time window? We'd come out of that. We'd okay. come out of that. So um, my son, he'll be he'll be 14 years old. Um, so this was about my mother had just passed away. So this was 2011, 2012 is what is the time frame. So it was 2012. So we're talking about, you know, um, about 12 years ago. And I'm, you know, so we come at, we, we kind of like, we're, we're still in the bottom of the real estate market. We're coming out. And I was fortunate that, you know, I didn't, I didn't lose a bunch of money. I didn't lose any properties and that sort of thing, but I was looking at everything. It's like, all right, what do I invest in now over the next decade? And I got introduced through, um, uh, somebody I met at a business meeting with my wife. Cause she was starting her, um, excuse me, architecture practice. And he said, you should look into multifamily real estate, Chris. I was like, yeah, it's like kind of what I'm already doing. But I was like, sure, I'll look into it. And that's when I learned how as a passive investor, Craig, I could actually make better after-tax returns. And I was like, this is crazy. So I sold all my properties, sold all my single family properties, put all the money into multifamily or commercial real estate. We bought a commercial office downtown as well during that period of time. Um, and I was like, all right, this is, this is the new way that I'm going to do it. Um, and yeah, so now, you know, it's, there's, you ask like, how do I evaluate a good deal? There's, there's a lot of things that go into that. Um, and we can kind of jump into that, but I wanted to kind of talk about kind of that evolution from single yeah. family. Well, and that's family. likely the most natural trajectory every investor goes through and look at even me here. I was selling for seven years, residential real estate, right? For seven years, that was my life showing properties individually. And there is a compounding nature to it, but really nothing can beat the compounding benefit to the multifamily space or the commercial space. I know you, and we'll get into what you yeah. raise for, but yeah. you know, you raise for, you know, mobile homes and, and, you know, multifamily deals, car washes, the whole nine. Um, 
And you likely see the scalability of that as opposed to uh, the single family side, which is a little bit more rudimentary. Um, not a bad thing. And there's obviously such a vast and big market for homes. Uh, but the upside to the world that we're in now is a little bit greater. So yeah. from going to the world of medical sales, when did you find capital raising? Uh, you know, when, when did that yeah. kind of get launched into, when did you realize that was, you know, a career path where you could, you know, make a lot of money and actually replace you probably your, your high paying, uh, medical career, you know, can you kind of tell us that story? Yeah. So I introduced my first partner to multifamily. Um, so this was, you know, that same time period about 2013 and a couple years later, he had, he had some things happen. His father had passed away. He had some, um, capital events. So he, he had invested a lot of money, very frugal. And he, he's like, Hey, Chris, I'm going to retire. I was like, okay, that's cool. I'm like, no, you're not. Cause you know, it's funny, you know, when somebody tells you something and you can kind of see their future, um, better than they can. I was like, that's not going to last very long. Um, it'd be like, if I said, I'm going to retire, my wife's like, you'll never retire. That's crazy. She's like, you're, you'll get bored. And you know, um, and she's right. So sure enough, six months later, he's like, Hey, I'm going to buy an apartment building with the group that we were investing with as a JV partner. I want you to be my partner. And I was like, this is great. So you know, we sat down, we put a plan together and I was actually going to leave the medical space entirely. And we'd hit a point where we were financially independent. So I had the opportunity to do that. So you basically your expenses were, you know, exceeded your, your, your rental income exceeded your expenses and probably knowing you, uh, being the overachiever that you are, there's probably a nice cushion to hit that monthly nut effectively. Correct. Yeah. So we had, yeah, exactly. So, I mean, the only debt we had at the time was the the house that we were living in with our two young boys that I'd paid um, $315,000 for uh, back in 2009. And our mortgage was probably like- Something tells me it's done yeah. pretty well. <laughs> that did all right. Um, but yeah, you know, it was my, my mortgage was like 250 or 270 or something like that. It was 1300 bucks a month. And, you know, so we had that. We had, you know, so if you have five grand a month coming in, you know, and your mortgage is $1,300 and you have your cars paid off and you're, you know, you live reasonably like that's enough money. And my wife was still working. So I was like, well, shoot, we don't really have to do anything anymore. So it gave me that flexibility. Now, what happened was I actually was recruited by another medical device company to, to, to come work with them as in a leadership role. And the house I'm sitting in now, uh, we own the lot and my wife is an architect. So we wanted to build this home together. Um, so I was like, well, we're gonna have to work a couple more years to make that a reality because you know, one of the great things about real estate, Craig, is that your after-tax income could be zero, so you pay no taxes. But banks don't like that. They don't like to lend on somebody that doesn't make nope. money, right? That'd be so a non-QM I... loan, which is a non-qualified mortgage for those who have basically no paper gains. So that will likely be something that I have to work out with my mortgage broker coming up here as well, as we aim to pay nothing in taxes. And if you're looking to learn more about that, reach out to Chris and myself. There you go. Yes, <laughs> yeah. absolutely. Great Great point. And so but I basically said, hey, it's not so bad. I'm going to work a couple more years, have some additional income coming in. So we we could write cash checks for when we were building our house, which was nice. And also we got, you know, got nice financing. Um, but, you know, during that period, you know, we were, I started to syndicate deals with my first partner. And as we went on through the process, I realized that I really enjoyed talking to investors, kind of kind of sharing the gospel as it would be on this asset class. He really liked the operations side. So over our um, you know four-ish year partnership, we kind of gravitated towards individual things. So as as I continued with my career in, in the syndication space and the commercial space, I, I just really enjoyed 
you know, finding operators that I could work with and helping to, you know, grow their operations through the capital side. And, and also I, I really like to look at deals. I look to, I like to analyze deals. I like to look at deals. I like to figure out like what is going to be, you know, a great asset class for the next five, 10, 20 years, and, and then figure out how to place those long-term bets along with our investors. That's awesome. So what year roughly did you kind of stumble into, I guess, capital raising? Because it sounds like you probably rode this last wave up very nicely. Yeah. So, I mean, we raised our first dollar in 2016. Okay. Yep. And then that's kind of right when you said, hmm, there's a career in this effectively. Yeah. Or did so you always say that was, that was a career? Yeah. What's interesting is I didn't really set out to make it a career. And what I realized was that, you know, let's see here. Let me back up a little bit. So in 2015, 2016, around that time period, I sit down with my accountant and I had, we had some property sales and I had really high W2 income that year and we'd already paid a lot of taxes. And I sit down and he sets a glass down on the table next to me. And he said to me, as he poured me a shot of bourbon, he said, what number are you prepared to hear? And he hands me the glass. Now, for anyone listening, if your accountant pours you a drink of liquor and hands it to you before he tells you how much you owe in taxes, that number's not a good number, okay? <laughs> or, or you're celebrating, which you owe no taxes, right? But trust me, that's not a good sign. So I had to write a big check and I was like, this is, this is not acceptable. Like, you know, there's got to be a better way to do this, right? So I said, okay, I've got to engineer how I get compensated. And I had a great guest on my show um, and she talked about like, how, how do you, how can you grow your worth to a hundred million dollars or more? And some of her points are, you know, find a high earning career, but ultimately get paid in equity, you know, start, and this is how the richest people do it, Craig. I know you know this, you know, the richest families out there, they either own businesses or real estate or, or typically both. But the thing is, commercial real estate, and I talk about this in my book, commercial real estate is a business. It's valued like a business. So what do the richest families, what do the richest people in the world have in common? They own businesses. Some of those businesses are real estate. So I said, then you know, I, I sold about $100 million of product in my life in, in, med in the medical device space. And I said, all right, the next $100 million that I sell is going to be my business, right? I'm going to grow my business from now on. But- I don't want to get paid in cash. I want to get paid in equity ultimately, because if you can get paid in equity and you don't have to pay taxes on that equity, and then you can, you can continue to leverage and grow that equity like we can do in real estate, then the compounding effect, you know, if you're growing your money, double digits, 10, 15, 20% a year, and you're not paying taxes, you can get to that hundred million dollar figure in terms of net worth. Um, as I was mentioning on, on that on that podcast episode, a lot faster than if you're making $100,000 or a million dollars, paying half in taxes, then investing, paying taxes, investing, paying taxes. It's like you're constantly swimming upstream like a salmon. So that's when I kind of re-engineered how I wanted to be compensated and make money. And then I wanted to educate my investors that I worked with and bring them along with me. So let's do it all together. And that's really what we do at Next Level Income is we operate like a family office and we bring our investors along with us into these investments. That's incredible. So switching gears into the typical deals that you do, can you explain yeah. the deals that you, you usually raise for? And then also uh, maybe 
the reason why you're so specific with the groups that you work with? Yes. So, um, so that, that first partner, let's start out with that. That first partner that I worked with, I no longer work with that individual anymore. And to put it bluntly, it did not end well. Okay. And so now I'm very particular and look, if you're listening, you've probably had a failed relationship or a failed business partnership, you know, something, right? And you <laughs> learn through that process. So you learn how to vet individuals, you learn how to vet investments and different things, and you need to take, you know, you need to take your time. Um, I knew that individual for a couple decades. I had a lot of trust in that individual, and it still didn't work out. That person didn't treat me right as far as I'm concerned. So, you know, I, I say, okay, you know, I got to get to know people. I got to get to know how they work. And what I do is I, I take my time. Um, so, you know, if I was, if, if I was uh, going to compare this to dating, getting married, I would, I would be dating a person for two or three years before I, I really wanted to get into a serious relationship with them um, is how I do that. But um, I'm really, so that, that's kind of why I take my time you know, looking at partners, Craig, I want to see, you know, how they look at deals. Are we congruent with respect to, um, you know, our long-term views? And, you know, I, I have, I have my traits with how I look at things. I want partners that look at things from a slightly different, different perspective, because that means we're going to bring value, right? We have, we should have a, a similar long-term objective and long-term perspective, but on a short-term basis, we should complement each other with the way we look at things. Um, you know, one of the things I like about Lone Star is is your focus on operations and your vertical integration, which I'm really I've been really impressed with, as well as what I consider the expertise that you all have in certain areas, like with respect to um, certain uh, tax structures within within these properties. So I think you guys bring a lot of value to the industry when it comes to those two aspects. Um, so you. that's, that's a piece, that's a piece of the, uh, the equation. The other thing is, you know, I think, you know, if we kind of go back to like why multifamily or how do you find an asset class that's going to make sense for, you know, the next 10 or 20 years. And really, I think that's a good timeline. Um, if we're investing, like we really, I don't think anybody can time the market, but can you find, you know, can you time the tides? You know, we can, we can look at the moon and we can say, okay, the tides going in, the tides going out. But I might not be able to tell you if the waves are going to be two or three or four feet high, you know, but that's not that important if you know which way the tides are going. How do I do that? I look at demographics. So a lot of people, you know, they, they, they say, oh, when did you move from um, uh, med device to, to real estate? And people forget or don't, don't know the story. Um, and by the way, if you want to, if you want to kind of learn like all the details of my story, you can get a free copy of my book at nextlevelincome.com. I'll even send you a copy if you're in North America. So feel free to go there, click on the book link, and yeah. Do um, you also want to copy? Yeah, plug the email where people could reach out to you if they are looking to sure. get that book. Yeah. So uh, nextlevelincome.com. It's the best spot, Craig. You can click on the book link and get a free copy of the book, or click on the contact link, and that'll that'll message will go straight to our team as well. And we'll pin that to the show notes. Awesome. Um, so in my in my book, I talk about how I started as an investor. And I found the medical device career to fund my investing career. So if you're thinking like an investor, it actually motivates you to be better at what you do, I think. Now, so that's that's the first piece from a mindset perspective. The second piece is use demographics to your advantage. So I got into the medical device space because I said, okay, what type of sales 
not only is complementary to my skill set and my knowledge base, but what type of sales is going to be on a positive trend over the next 20 years? That's, you know, 20 years is a career. We had the richest, most affluent, I'm sorry, the most active, most affluent generation history, the baby boomers. And what were they doing? They want to stay active. So what are they having? They're having surgery, orthopedic surgery to stay active. Great industry to be in. It's supported by the government. You have Medicare, you have Medicaid, you have private insurance. So it's a very stable industry when it comes to that. There's a lot of, a lot of other intricacies and you know, people familiar would be like, well, it's not that simple, Chris. Um, but you had, you had really nice demographic trends supporting that industry. Multifamily, and as I talk about in my book, and I know you know this, Craig, but we've had just a, a tremendous growth in renters, um, specifically from, you know, kind of more like your generation, right? Millennials. But also, we've also had the baby boomers that have continued to, to rent in greater generations as they've retired. So you've had some really nice demographic trends. Also, immigrants, approximately 75% of immigrants rent. So you have, you know, millennials, Baby boomers, immigrants, all these are renters, right? That's a really good, that's a really good trend. Well, that are doing think that. about the states that are doing well too with regards to demographics and migration, Texas. And Absolutely. frankly, not to get yeah. political, but what probably is the number one location where people are coming through? It's probably, you know, our our friends below us yeah. in Mexico. And yeah. what states are they likely going to feed into? Well, it's simple. It's going to be California. Arizona, New Mexico, and Texas, but most likely predominantly Texas um, and, and California and Arizona. Um, but naturally, those states can do well. And of course, between those, uh, no one really wants to mess in California at the moment due to the red tape associated with the deals and kind of the, yep. the politics there, unfortunately. Um, but Texas has all those benefits of, you know, being in receipt of more tenants, which for the future will be helpful for kind of what we do. Absolutely. Great point. Yeah. So from a macro perspective, you, know, you kind of look at the overall demographics. Then from you know a, a market perspective, you say, hey, where are people moving? So this is where the demographics are, but then where are people moving? You're right. They're moving to Texas. They're moving to Florida. They're moving to the Southeast. They're moving to um, Idaho, Colorado. Like These are states that if you're an investor, you should probably focus on, in my opinion. And then you want to be, and you kind of mentioned this, you want to be in business-friendly states. Now, why is that? Well, you know, if you're in a state like Illinois or New York or New Jersey, people are moving out of there. The weather's already not that favorable. California weather's phenomenal. It's beautiful out there. The topography's great. I think there's too many people personally. I like a little bit more space around me. But, you know, the one of the companies I used to work with was based there. Our, our best performing employees that worked out there were paying 14%, you know, 10, 11, 14% state income tax. That's insane, right? That's crazy. Right. And they, they can't even, you know, and I don't know if, if, if people just saw this, but they just looked at the budget. They're running a huge budget deficit now because they overspent and they didn't get their tax receipts in on time this year. So they're, you know, they're in really bad shape when it comes to, you know, a fiscal perspective. Well, the and market why, is also, yeah. yeah, the market's also negatively reacting to it because people are kind of fed Correct. up to it. There, there's the yeah. first time ever a net loss to California. Now I'm not saying California is dead as a state, but you know, yeah. options are more plentiful now than ever before. And it feels as if there's other places catching up. Like for instance, when I was a kid, you know, maybe this is my West coast bias being from the Bay area, Northern California, but I didn't hear of Charleston or I didn't hear of, you know, Asheville. I didn't hear of, yeah. you know, maybe call it, you know, nice places and call it Georgia or or right. other kind of spots in Florida. But now those places are a lot more relevant 
and are kind of being, you know, are definitely benefiting from kind of the lack of um, quality policy in some of the states that uh, we used to love and live in. Exactly. So look, you know, there again, California has, you know, a lot of great, a lot of great features, a lot of great attributes. But if you're a young individual and you're starting a career and you're looking at LA or Phoenix or Dallas or Houston or, you know, you know, Miami or, or Atlanta, like why would you move to LA when you can move to Atlanta or Houston or Phoenix or one of these states that has a much lower income tax rate? It's growing faster, so it's better for your career long term. And and it's a much lower cost of living. You know, well, it just makes sense. To that point, it's funny. I, I recall when I was moving from the Bay Area, I was thinking about living in LA or maybe San Diego and then obviously Phoenix. And I kind of was just mentally thinking about it saying, hey, what am I solving for if I leave Northern California to go to Southern California? And the answer is nothing because it's a lateral uh, switch versus um, if I move to Arizona, there's a chance that I could buy a house and you know afford where I'm living and grow into the market as a, and be a lot more efficient with my dollars. Because you know obviously, yes. if you look at a 10-year chart of renting versus owning, well, the delta mm -hmm. between the two becomes incredibly massive over a decade's yeah. time. So you know, exactly. get your fixed costs sorted out, and you don't really solve for that. And I think, frankly, a lot of people are you know really that are millennials and probably Gen Z, unfortunately, living too much for you know enjoying their quality of life in their 20s. But the unfortunate reality is with inflation and costs and fractionalized debt, uh, you know, owning a home or kind of getting investments going is going to be, you know, not really possible if you don't really make that top of mind earlier in your career, which obviously you solve for. But now with prices being so incredibly expensive, which is what we have to look at. And, yeah. you know, we're looking around my people of my generation who, you know, even make good money are like, how the heck am I going to afford anything? So it's, it's scary, but, yeah. you know, you got to have that top of mind. You you absolutely do. And look, if you're look, if you're a young individual, I think you need to think about, you know, we most people that are listening right now understand compound interest, right? But a lot of people don't understand compound time. So, you know, whatever and I, I look you can look at this multiple different ways. I've I have two young boys. They're soon to be twelve and fourteen. So whatever they do now, I've told my son my son this just this past weekend. I said, look. The harder you work now, the easier life's going to be in the future. So if you're starting out in your career and you're in your early 20s, the time you put in today is going to compound in terms of value, just like a dollar you put in today. So if you're in California and you're giving up that money to taxes, you're never getting that back and you're not getting back the interest that it earns. If you go out and you party and you drink and you screw off, you're not getting that time back. And you're also not getting the time back that's compounded. So all that time that I spent in college reading and studying and learning, that was even more valuable than those first properties I bought in terms of value. And that's the thing. You have to understand that when you're younger and put in the time. Because if I could give you a plan and you would be financially independent by 35, how much risk and what can you do by the time you're 35 if you're financially independent? You do whatever you want, right? You can go work for a startup. You can travel the world. You can do all these things. And that's a really relatively short period of time. I'm not saying you work your life away because look, my father died when he was 41. My best friend died when he was 18. I get that life isn't predictable, but you you have to remember that you know you have to keep learning and 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 working and putting in that time early as well as enjoying life.
Yes. So let's talk about and switching gears. And I, I love the these conversations we're having because I feel like you and I could talk for forever. So with regards to the opportunities that you invest in, multifamily, mobile homes, and car washes, can you explain just briefly why each of them, you, you like them? Yes. So still a big fan of multifamily. If you read my book on the front, it says um, how to make, keep, and grow your money using the holy grail of real estate to achieve financial independence. What's the holy grail? In my book, I talk about multifamily because of the demographics, but it's really how can you find a risk-adjusted return where you actually you actually increase your returns as you enter this asset class and decrease your risk. And that's something that Ray Dalio talks about and, and multifamily does that. Um, but so does self-storage, which we're also fans of. So does so do mobile home parks, and I would call mobile home parks kind of a similar. It's kind of a, a derivation of multifamily, right? Because if if we buy like we're buying a six hundred forty five lot mobile home park right now, so that's like buying, you know, like we just, you know, Craig, we just partnered on a six hundred sixty six unit portfolio, six hundred sixty six doors, six hundred forty five doors, kind of similar, right? You know, we get lot rent versus rent, so you know, there's a lot of similarities with that. Um, you know, you mentioned affordability. We have a real affordability crisis right now in this country. So, you know, yes, that makes it harder for people to buy homes and people like you and me that are, that are, um, you know, that are more high income. If we can't buy a house, we're more likely to rent a class A apartment. But what about you go down? Well, you have the same benefits in class B, you know, as you get into class C apartments and below, you start to have this kind of, um, perverse mix of you increase the risk, but the reward doesn't really increase commensurate in my opinion. So you have a challenge and you get subsidized housing payments in there and you don't have pride of ownership. And we used to drive these, these communities like in, in Southern Atlanta and something I noticed, you know, it'd be like two or three in the afternoon and everybody would be home. And I'm like, do these people not work? And the yep. answer is no, they don't work. Yeah. So, you know, that's, that's a challenge. I was just touring, you know, nice, like you call it a three or four star, uh, mobile home park last week at same time of day, middle of the day, there was really no one home because they're all working. Now they're working class, but they also, most of them own that manufactured, that mobile home that they're in. So I would prefer, you know, I like class A, you know, B plus multifamily, but I also like mobile home parks because I, I think it has a similar risk adjusted return and you're helping to solve for that affordability crisis that's out there. So that's, I would lump kind of all those together. I know I haven't talked about car washes yet, but um, hopefully that kind of addresses that point. Yeah. And it's also egoless investing doing multiple homes because I think we all kind of grow up fantasizing about having the beautiful beachfront property places, which are great. And that gets obviously some awesome, awesome market beta. But typically speaking, unless you're inve developing it, you're kind of just going off, hey, if, if you know the economy is humming, yeah, you'll get great appreciation there. Multifamily, okay, you know, we all want to have the nice A properties, but you know, typically speaking, there's a little more value in that B to B plus, maybe A minus range. Um, and then it gets all the way down to C. We don't really play in the C space because to your point, very challenging on a risk-adjusted basis. It's kind of tough to make it compute. And then you get to the egoless decision, which is mobile homes, but is such a robust uh, play with regards to the business plans. But also on top of that, it's an incredible investment when kind of times get into right now, what we're in right now, which is December of 2023, where we've got inflation kind of crazy. So we have inflation that we're worried about right now. Mm -hmm. It's tough. But then also uh, inflation's tough, but affordability is a challenge. So those people, as you mentioned, kind of get compressed down here, but are yes. working class people that, you know, have pride of ownership and they actually own a lot. What happens? It becomes easier for operators 
um, and folks like yourself to invest it and to make it work. So there's a nice value add play there and also uh, a lot less assurance insurance costs and issues associated with a, a mobile home uh, play and also yep. egoless decision, right? So then let's talk about the car wash choice. So what about car washes yep. are appealing? Because I've heard, you know, they can be a little bit boomer bust, but, you know, clearly you've got the numbers and you work with a great group on that front to help solve for that. Yeah. So I think as we get into this period, Craig, as you mentioned, inflation's high, property price prices are high. You know, there's it's at some point you're running up against the ability to to raise rents and create value. Um, also, I don't think we can reliably um, or we can rely on cap rate compression either. So when you look at all those things, you say, well, how do you make money in, in, in commercial real estate? And I think, again, you have to be very selective in terms of what you're choosing with your multifamily properties or mobile home parks, as we mentioned. Um, but also you can look at types of properties that have much higher cash flows. And I would call this operating real estate. So in, in that, I would actually put mobile home parks in there because your operations is really critical. And I don't, these, these are all classes of real estate that you really can't, in my opinion, pull like an operator off the shelf. So look, you guys are, are phenomenal operators, Craig, but if, if, if you guys couldn't operate those properties, we could find another management company to operate those properties. Will they do as good of a job? Maybe not, but we can find somebody that's going to operate them in a reasonable fashion. Mobile home parks, it's a lot harder to find that. It also is harder to find that in car washes. So I would call all these things operating real estate. In addition to those, I would add senior housing and short-term rentals into that. And what I mean by these, in each of these categories, mobile home parks, car washes, short-term rentals, senior housing, or assisted living, the operations is what's going to make you the money. Also, it's going to increase your operating margins, so you're going to have much higher cash flow. So there's more, there's more risk involved, but there's more cash flow involved if you're doing it well. So what's the crux of each of these? It's having an operating team. So in our mobile home park portfolio, we have an integrated, vertically integrated operating team. In our car washes, we have a vertically integrated operating team. And look, I I don't I don't just invest in these. I actually own personally own a car wash here in Asheville, North Carolina, and I almost bought one eight years ago before we even looked in this space. So I've been I've been involved and in sniff around this space for the better part of a decade, and they're they're not complex businesses. Like I can tell you, it's easier to run a car wash than it is to run a medical device company, for instance. But it's also not not you know super simple. You know, you have chemicals, you have mechanics, you have people involved. You know, there's a lot of things um, that can that can go wrong. In with competition, advertising, I have to imagine goes into That's play. Right. Yeah. Yep. That's right. So our strategy, and by the way, we're getting close to three dozen locations. Now we have 31 locations. Um, but we focus on um, typically secondary or tertiary markets, and we buy express tunnel car washes. So these are the washes where you pull in. I know you got them out there in Phoenix. You pull in, and it, and it pulls you through. Some people may be familiar with the InBay Automatics, which is one that I own here in Asheville. I call them like a robo-wash. You pull in, and there's a robot that goes around mm -hmm. and washes your car. Um, there's nobody... There's nobody that mans those, whereas the express tunnel wash, you might have three, four, five, six employees that are there. So you have to make sure you have a good team. We have over 130 employees with our, our operating team on our car washes um, currently. So if you get all those right, you pick the location right. Um, we have a proprietary underwriting technique where we combine our multifamily underwriting expertise with our car wash underwriting expertise, and we blend them together. And we feel like that gives us a superior analytical capability when it comes to finding these washes. And then our team, 
we're doing things that nobody else in the in the industry is doing in terms of of running these washes. But um, probably the most important, and this kind of gets back to what we would call like the Chick Fil A strategy of car washes. You know, if if you go to Chick Fil A, you know, and look, I have two young boys. We go to Chick Fil A every week, Craig. I know I you don't have Chick-fil-A. a ton of Chick Fil A's where you are. No, yeah, we, we got Chick Fil A. Believe me, <laughs> we got Chick Fil A. I got one down the street yeah. from me, and it's there. We go probably a minimum once a month. There you go. Yeah. So um, you have kids, you'd be going once a week. But so around the corner from me, my favorite chicken sandwich in Asheville, it's going to cost you about 15 bucks. It's got pimento cheese on it. It's got like hot mop sauce. You get a drink, shoot, you get a beer and a sandwich. You're out 30 bucks with tip by the time you're like out the door. Maybe have a couple yep. of beers at 30 bucks. I go to Chick-fil-A with my kids. I can buy everybody food for 30 bucks. Okay. Now, what does Chick-fil-A have? Do they have the best chicken sandwich in Asheville? No. But for five bucks, it's it's I can't beat it. It's got the best value, right? We want to have the best value and the best experience. Just like when you go to Chick-fil-A, you know, you got these younger kids, they're dressed in khakis, a nice polo shirt, you know, they're gonna treat you super well. And you're gonna walk out of there with a smile on your face, you know, and you're gonna you're gonna be happy with that that meal that you got. We wanna we want the same thing in the car wash space, but it takes it takes people, it takes simple sales techniques and you know, it takes good operations. And that's the same thing that Chick-fil-A has. And we aim to, we aim no, to have as well. I kind of think about that, the value, the consistency. You think of In-N-Out, which is West Coast, obviously. In-N-Out, oh, yeah. Chipotle, well, In-N-Out. and Chick-fil-A. You know what you're going to get every single time. Boom, boom, boom. Yeah. Gets me to my next question. Um, you're very particular about this, and that's the sponsors. How do you vet the person yes. you work with? It's Is it obviously a relationship? And, you know, what does your DD process look like? Yeah. Yeah. So I think, again, it gets back to basics, Craig. Um, it's, it's spending time with the, the operators, the sponsors that you work with and understanding, you know, what's important to them. It's spending time as I did with your management team on the ground and, you know, seeing, Hey, you know, is this, is, is all this congruent? I want to know how they communicate. You know, you're, you're very responsive personally. I've dealt with you a lot and you know, that's important. So I want to know, you know, are the operators responsive? Are they precise? Does their underwriting align? you know, with what they're saying, what about their management team? You know, when I visit the properties, am I seeing the same thing on the ground as I'm hearing? And I'm also seeing in the numbers. So you really have to evaluate the people, the operations, as well as the numbers and make sure that all those are working. And again, that just takes time. And for me, a lot of times it takes, you know, I, 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 uh, you know, I spoke with Rob for about three years, um, you know, on a, on a regular basis, looked at a lot of deals you guys have, I would recommend, you know, investing a small amount with an operator and getting to kind of see the background with them. Um, you know, same thing with, uh, my partners on the mobile home park side, I've known them for four years. You know, we have long-term relationships. Um, you know, one of them was a coaching client of mine. So I got to know them same thing on with, uh, the car wash space. I've known those guys for over four years. Um, so it's just, it's just time. What are some of the metrics you need to do uh, to do a deal? You know, is it, you said, yep. you know, obviously cap rate compression is not the best story because it's a little speculative. So do you kind of typically speaking focus on the cash flow and the debt structure or, you know, what kind of gets you excited? Yeah. So I want to see pre- preferably long-term debt or debt that aligns with the hold period of the property. I want to see properly lever- proper leverage too, 70%. Or a little lower, like our average leverage in our portfolio is less than seventy. It's fifty to seventy percent. So we're we're in a good spot in today's market. Um, and then you know I want to see I want to see reasonable cash on cash returns. I want to see reasonable overall returns because if a sponsor's telling me they're going to give me thirty percent returns, 
I'm going to, something's, something's not right Off. either. Yeah. Yeah. Like something's not right. So, you know, if it's too, too high or too low, that's not, that's not great. And the thing is, you know, as, as you and I know, Craig, we, we can, we can mess with the returns in a spreadsheet all we want, but I want to know, are the assumptions are the underwriting assumptions, you know, conservative and congruent with, with what I'm seeing on the ground and what, what I believe in. And that's more important to me than like, Hey, am I going to get another 200 basis points in return? You know, and I think I really want to harp on this point. And this is a PSA to any, you know, LP investor, new investor who's looking at deals, chasing the highest IRR is a fool's errand because ultimately, if you take the same deal and give it to 10 different sponsors, you can get 10 different projections. So being really uh, having a fluid understanding of what metrics get put in there is everything. So please, please, please be thinking about that. With that said, final question, what is your hottest real estate take? Yeah. So look, um, I talk a lot about the 18 and a half year real estate cycle. Um, this is a book I'm a big fan of. It's written by Philip Anderson. It's called the secret life of real estate and banking. Um, it's like my, it's like my real estate Bible. It's all dog eared. And, um, it talks a lot about the, uh, the banking industry in, uh, in the world and the history of the United States, but also real estate. Um, so check it out. You can check out our podcast too, but if you understand where you are in the real estate cycle, then you can understand what is going to perform well in that period. And I think I summarized this book in episode 100 of my podcast. So if you don't want to read the book, it's like three or 400 pages. Um, you can check out that podcast and get a good idea of, of why I think um, it's worthwhile understanding the cycle. Gotcha. So that is your take is to understand that book and the cycle and the, the cyclical nature of the debt and real estate business. Absolutely. Yep. And okay. that's like, that's a whole podcast in and of itself. But I need that, that podcast then. Yeah, yeah, I'm absolutely. gonna have to listen to that today. Then, cool. Where can people get a hold of you? Reach out to you, listen to your show. Please give yourself as many plugs as you'd like. The floor <laughs> is yours. Greg, thank you. Just check out nextlevelincome.com. You can get a free copy of our book. You can listen to our podcast. You can check out our blog. If you want to learn about some of our real estate investments that may complement the multifamily space, you can also click on the invest link and schedule a call with our team there. Absolutely, guys. I just want to say, if you are an investor uh, or looking to you know work with someone, Chris is really precise. As you just heard, he's got the engineering background. He is a friend, a partner, and we're just looking forward to working with you more and more. Um, just want to say how humbled we are at Lone Star to be one of the few people that you work with. Because I think, as I said, you work with three people. Um, I know three those people partners, and right. they are yeah. as legit as they come in their own specific sectors. So we're so flattered to have you in the Lone Star family. We can't thank you enough. We look forward to taking care of you, Matt, the NIL team. Uh, thank you so much for being on the show. And hopefully we'll see you soon. Likewise, Craig. Thanks for the opportunity. Take care.